you know, the Lord is bigger than our natural understanding. And we need to get into that mode. It's not that we have got God figured out and pass on our capsulization of God saying, here, take three pills of God in the morning, three pills of God in the afternoon, and three at night, and you're going to be fine. It doesn't work that way. The way it works is that we are introduced to the God of all creation who has no beginning, who has no end, who for some reason loves us, which is beyond me, and puts up with us and works in us to change us into the image of his Son. And that God has freely given himself for us and wants to fellowship with us and is merely opening his hand saying, come to me, I'm knocking at the door, please let me in into everything that we do. And that's the wonderful gospel of sharing Jesus. It's to be able, as Larry was saying, to pass on the same Jesus who rescued us, who pulled us out of the miry clay, and who pulled us into his arms and said, you are mine and I am going to take care of you. And you know, when we're talking in this series, we've been talking, I'm trying to get through, and this may be the last session, on getting through what Jesus meant then for there to be a basic equipping of every Christian. Because there are things that Jesus came to do to break down the strongholds of the enemy, and he laid them out. The, the Gospels are really written like they're written to me personally. I don't know if you're reading them, but they, they almost say, Jim, this. Jim this when I read them. They're all written to me personally. Like Jesus is saying, Jim, don't be this way. I'm holding out something better. And I know you read them the same way. And, in this, and when Jesus is laying these things out, he is saying it's so important that you repent of sin, that you change direction, that you hate sin, repent of it, that you accept me as your Savior, you recognize there is no way to the Father but through me, that I came and paid the price so that now you are redeemed. You, the, the price has been paid. You are redeemed and in, not only invited, but you are adopted into the family of God. You are a son or daughter of the Most High. Incredible just to think of that. And then to say, beyond being your Savior, I am your Lord and I am your King. And when you know me as Lord and King, that's when you're going to know fulfillment. For he says in Colossians, you are complete in Christ. And this is not something that we find in any other way, but we're complete in him. But two things that Jesus talked about that we haven't covered yet are the baptism in water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to try to talk about these today. And to me, that kind of finishes out what Jesus described as a basic equipping for everybody. And I'm talking about a basic equipping because this is something that you don't go, well, six months into Christianity, I'm going to be good enough to get baptized into water. No, that's not right. Right at the beginning, you get baptized in water. You don't say a year into Christianity, I'll have developed enough spiritual maturity that I can handle the Holy Spirit coming into me. No, right as soon as you meet the Lord, he wants the Holy Spirit to come into you. Right then, so this, when I say the basing it, basic equipping, it's the initial equipping. The repentance from sin, accepting Jesus as your Savior, accepting Jesus as your Lord, being baptized in water in the Holy Spirit. That can be 35 minutes. It can all happen. So water baptism, I'm going to spend, uh, water baptism is an interesting thing. The reason water baptism is so important is Jesus said it was important. Okay, Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. 
And he said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Jesus said baptism was important. In Romans 6, 4, it says that we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. So Christ, the scripture said, was that we are buried with him through baptism. And a lot of times people describe this and say, okay, this is the outward testimony of something that happens inside of us. And in fact, that's true. That when we meet the Lord... There is an old person in me. There's an old Jim. There's an old one. And in baptism, it's the outward testimony of the old Jim is dying. I'm repenting from the old Jim, but more than that, Jesus is putting something new inside of me. And that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And baptism is that testimony. The old Jim, the old self has passed away. We're not doing it like we did before. And the inside is different. Jesus doesn't just change us on the outside, he changes us on the inside. The message of the new covenant was that the Lord would come and change our heart, that he would write his law on our heart that we would be transformed by the action of Jesus inside of us. And baptism is that outward testimony. And we do change, and the world needs to see change. And, and the dead going under, the old going under, and the new rising is a tremendous outward testimony. Now, to me, there's another neat thing about baptism that sometimes isn't shared that much. Baptism is a wonderful marker. When you get saved... Or when you first meet the Lord, that night or that day you're thinking, I'll never forget this day. I'll never forget what's happened to me today. But do you know what the enemy does? The enemy comes in and goes, nah, you just had some funny feelings. You were hurting. Those people were nice to you. You mistook warm, kind feelings from some people for God. That wasn't really God. That was friendship and friends looking after you and what you thought was an encounter with God, well, it really wasn't that. Or words to that effect. Remember, the enemy is a deceiver, that he oppresses, and that he is looking to diminish Jesus at every turn. Diminish Jesus at every turn. We mentioned this before, that the enemy will try to take Jesus out of every word, even in the church. We will say, well, what are you doing? Well, I'm on a walk of faith. Well, you can be on a walk of faith, but you need to be on a walk of faith in Jesus. Don't leave off the Jesus. You say, well, I'm a disciple. Say, what are you doing? Well, I'm growing as a disciple. You're growing as a disciple of Jesus. Don't leave out Jesus. And someone says, well, you know, I'm, I'm maturing in my Christian faith. I'm maturing in my Christian faith in Jesus. Jesus is the highest, the most important, the one who fulfills, the one who makes all of this possible, and he needs to be exalted. But the enemy will come in at every level of Christian anything and try to push Jesus a little bit to the side and then a little bit further to the side. So you begin to do things where Jesus' name isn't mentioned. It's a horrific thing to think. 
But one great thing about baptism is if you get baptized, you go under the water and come up, you don't forget that day. And there are people that are looking around you saying, I remember when you went under the water. I remember when you made a public statement of your faith in Jesus through baptism. And that's a great thing. And that's a great marker. And I think that's another side of baptism that's very good because it's your public statement. No, I'm going down. Jesus is coming up. And everybody saw it, and that happened, and we demarcated. Now, that's water baptism. It's not more complicated than that. But Jesus said to do it, and we need to do it. And if we're not baptized, it's important to get baptized. Jesus said to do it, and we need to do it. So I'm going to turn from that to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that has caused a lot of stir within the churches. If you kind of look at church history and you think about how did different things happen, um, you know, back in the first church and how have they happened, you know, starting with the Protestant Reformation and different things have come out of different churches. The baptism of the Holy Spirit kind of made a, a big, um, I guess, a big dent on everybody pretty much starting with the Azusa Street Revival. But the Lord knows how to fill us with himself. And from the beginning, it was the intent of the Lord that there be a special fellowship that did not come just from a mental understanding of facts about God. The fellowship was meant to be much deeper, even in the garden, the word that's used for when God comes through the garden is like a Shekinah glory fellowship. The word there means a knowing that God came and visited, that he communed with Adam and Eve. He wasn't like, uh, you know, just a handsome old man who walked down the garden path. That was not God. God would come into the garden and would commune with Adam and Eve. From the beginning, he meant there to be a special fellowship with his creation. And when we read what he says in Jeremiah 31, he says that Israel has rejected me even though I was their husband, that he meant to be close and to be revealed. And even when he laid out the law in the Old Testament, he would lay out these feasts. The dominant part of the feasts, when God described them, was rejoicing. And he said, I want you to come together and bring an offering, and what will we do? we will rejoice together. And he said, there's going to be so much joy in that. I want you to bring your wife and your kids and your visitors and the person who's walking along the street and <coughs> every single person you can find. I want you to bring all of them. because on the And he had three feasts per year, so we had a feast every four months-ish. And he said, when you come to those feasts, we're going to rejoice. And I actually want to bless you. I want to bless you coming in, going out. I want to bless you in the field. I want to bless you in the city. When your enemies come against you in one way, they're going to run away seven ways. And that's what I want. And that was the message of God. From the beginning, he desired to have closeness with us. But he also laid out what happened if you went the other way. And he said, if you reject me, if you put another God in front of me, if you push me away and ignore what I'm saying, the blessing will not fall on you, and there will be a curse that falls on you. And when you read in Deuteronomy about the curse, it's a major curse. It's pages of curse. It's not just four or five little things. 
following after the Lord God made is a very clear thing. But at that time, and in that covenant, the Lord's presence was outside of the heart of man. Few exceptions, but the Lord's presence was outside. And there was a temple built to the Lord, and His glory resided in the temple above the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where His glory resided. But when Jesus came, He made it so that He would indwell within us. And we mentioned last time that John chapter 14 through chapter 17 is really, really good talking about Jesus talking about how important it is for us to abide in Him and for Him to abide in us. That God meant both for us to be in Him and for Him to be in us. And that in the Scripture, this is a mystery. Now, Paul sometimes mentions the word mystery, not a lot of times. He mentions it in that Gentiles were to be saved, and that's a mystery to the Jews. He mentions it in Colossians 1 to say, I want you to grab hold of this mystery, a Christ in you, the hope of glory, and how riches are the glory of that mystery. I want you to grab hold of that. He mentions just a couple of other times a mystery. But the fellowship with God is not something that we can get in our mind, bottle, and hand out to people and say, here, take three drinks of this and you will have fellowship with God. It doesn't work that way. It's bigger than that, more wonderful than that. And yet most things we do in our life, we gather understanding, then we get it into certain modules and figure out how it's going to be distributed or shared, and we're pretty much in charge of it from the beginning to the end. God is in a different mode than that. God says, come unto me and I'll reveal myself to you, but you are not going to be the one in charge of everything. I am calling you to serve me. I am calling you to give up your life that you find life. I am not calling you to try to take hold of me, to use me as your God for your purposes. I am not doing that. I am calling you to walk in the works that I prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And this is totally different than any other thing in our life. And this is one of the reasons that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a little bit tough. Because when the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened in the Bible, especially in uh, Pentecost, things came upon people that they did not control. God came upon them in a way that he could not be held back. And not only that, God came upon them in such fullness that he came out of their mouths, that they spoke in languages that they did not know. Well, releasing your tongue to God is a very big deal. That's a very big deal. The scripture says in James, the mature man has control of his tongue, has released his tongue to the Lord. That's a very difficult thing. But when the Holy Spirit comes in, if we need to yield not only our tongue, but our whole self to him, but yielding our tongue to him is one of the special things about speaking in tongues, is that the Lord has our tongue. That's a special thing. Well, this causes a major stir. Well, what does the Bible have to say about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It has a lot to say, but one of the big verses to me is in Matthew 3.11, and this is John the Baptist speaking. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So this is John the Baptist. And he's saying, I want to tell you what's coming. Jesus is coming. And it's very interesting that he didn't start off by saying, and Jesus will be the redemption for your sins. 
and Jesus will do this and this and this. The big thing he said about Jesus is Jesus is coming, and he's going to baptize you with the Spirit of God and fire. He is going to have the ability to take God's Spirit and completely fill you with God's Spirit. And this is absolutely amazing and beyond your understanding, and it's beyond your understanding when it happens, and it's beyond your understanding for your whole life. We never understand the infilling of the Holy Ghost. We know some more about it, but we don't have a grip on it. And most of us, when we first start out with God, we have this list of things we want God to do. Certainly take care of our children. I don't want to be poor. Uh, you know, fix Helen's uh, toes that keep getting hurt. You know, we get all these different things that we want God to do. But God comes up and says, hey, I'm bigger than all that. And by the way, when you come to me, I'm running the show. And we go, oh my gosh, this is a different ride. Now, there used to be, there was a ride at Six Flags. I, when I was young, and I would go to Six Flags, and there was a, it was a, a, one of the higher-end rides at the time. Now it's probably one of the lower-end rides. It was called the Mindbender. And you'd get on that thing, and while you were watching people riding that roller coaster and doing everything, well, you were in control sitting here, and they were kind of going around, and all of a sudden you got into that first car, and they brought back that iron thing and put you in, and you went, okay. I'm committed to something beyond my control. Have you got me? Every Christian is committed to a God who is beyond their control. And thank God, He is beyond our control. Because if we controlled Him, this world would be a horrific mess. There was another ride at Six Flags called the Freefall. And I always thought this was an interesting ride because they just kind of jacked you up five stories. And then they stuck you out a little bit. And then you just dropped. I think some of you have ridden it. And I looked at that, and Bob Smithwick was in line with me riding that ride. And we looked at this and said, what is the line? This, you just go up and come down. We couldn't see what the big deal was on it. So we got over there and got in that little thing. And they, of course, strapped you down, and your chest was all buckled in and everything. And you went up, and then they just pushed you out. Well, I hadn't watched the ride really carefully, because when they push you out, there's about a four-second delay before they do anything. They get you up there, push you out. You're looking at Stone Mountain, you know, way the heck over there. And there's about a four-second delay. Four seconds is plenty enough time, Gary, for my mind to go, it's broken. It's broken. They're going to have to bring a helicopter to get me out of here. How can I think that fast, you say? I don't know. It's not a gift. <laughs> okay, so... But that's what I thought. So at that moment, right when I panicked, it dropped. Well, for those of you that don't know, your intestines are kind of attached loosely inside your gut. And if you don't tense up your stomach, nobody told your intestines to drop, so your whole body can go down and your intestines try to stay at the same place, which means they come up through your, they feel like they're coming up through your chest. So I'm going down there and I'm falling and my intestines are leaping up and it, Anyway, it, did, it pushed some adrenaline out of me. Well, I wanted to ride that again. But this time I tightened up my stomach, kept my intestines and things. But I was out of control. I was in a place where I couldn't make it go left, right, up, or down, and what was happening was beyond me. Almost everything in God is that way. Yet we try to reduce God to something we can control. We try to duplicate practices that generate blessing. 
Well, this is how blessing came. We sang this song, and we need to sing only the second and the fourth verses because that's when the Spirit of God began to move on people. So don't ever sing the first and the third. We just need to sing the second and fourth. Well, we need to do it this way. God doesn't do it that way. He doesn't work that way. He's, he's saying, I want you to believe this. He says, I want you to know that faith consists of believing that I am and that I reward those who seek me. And that if you come to me and you desire me and try to please me, I will reward that. And you need to know it has nothing to do with your knowledge, skills, ability, ability to, to modularize God, to put God in packages, arrange time, place. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with our desire to please him. And he takes care of everything else. He takes care of everything else. He can speak through Balaam's donkey. He can use us. He doesn't need ability. He needs willingness. So this is why the Holy Spirit causes a bit of a stir. But John said, this is the main thing I want you to know about Jesus. He's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a little thing on the end you could choose or not choose. It wasn't dessert. You could skip it if you want to. No. This is a main thing Jesus is going to do. Well, God indwelling in us is, a, is something that is not even thought about in the Old Testament. People aren't thinking about that. God is always out there. We're trying to please him. But when the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the fullness of God dwelling in us. And so Jesus, by example, showed us the baptism. So in Luke 3, 22, says that the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus as he was being baptized in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came out of heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. So this is when Jesus was baptized in water, and we all know this verse, that the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove. Now this scene is particularly interesting because in one place, we hear the Father, we see the Holy Spirit, and we see the Son all together. We hear the voice of the Father, we see the Holy Spirit, and we see the Son all together. It's the only place I know in the Bible where that occurs. But we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit together. And it goes on in Luke to say very clearly in Luke 4, 1, right after he was baptized, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. So what happened to Jesus after he was baptized? He was, Luke says, full of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, it was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness. Well, now, sometimes we scratch our head and go, now, wait a second, how are we separating all these things out? This is a complicated thing to do. It's a little bit complicated, but not a lot complicated. God indwelling in us by his Spirit, he indwelt Jesus the Holy Spirit indwelt Jesus and led Jesus. Jesus came in the fullness of man and the fullness of God. We can't do that, but Jesus can. But he showed us. So he said, as the Father send me, so send I you. He showed us what it was, and it was important in Jesus' life that he be water baptized. And when John objected and said, you should be baptizing me, Jesus said, no, do this, that all righteousness be fulfilled. So it was important that Jesus be water baptized. You might say, well, gosh, Jesus doesn't need to be water baptized. Who thought that up? God thought that up. Okay, well, we'll go with that. Okay, Jesus needs to be water baptized. He does. He is an example for us. He's the firstborn among many brethren. He needed to be water baptized. He needed to be filled with the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God did fill him. 
and he, the Spirit of God led him in the wilderness. So this was an important thing that Jesus did by example. And then in Acts 10.38, when, when Peter was talking about Jesus, he said, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. This is what Peter said of him. He said, You know how God anointed the Son with the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 1-2, it says that Jesus was there until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, gave orders to the apostles. So the Holy Spirit is important. And when Jesus described the coming of the Holy Spirit, he had a hard selling job for his disciples. Now, I want you to imagine you were one of the 12 disciples. And Jesus came up and said words to the effect, I'm going away, but it's better for you that I go away. Would you believe that? Well, I wouldn't have believed it. I would say, how can it be good for you to leave when you're the Son of God and you're here? I can't see how that would be good, but, that, but listen to what Jesus said. In John 16, 7 through 14, Jesus said, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So we say, well, I would really like to know Jesus. I would like to know the heart of Jesus. The Bible says the Holy Spirit takes of Jesus and discloses to us. Now, I'm going to read three more verses about the Holy Spirit, and then I'm just going to summarize the nine things that Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do. So the next verse is John 15, 26. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father... That is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus. That's his hallmark. In John 14, 16, and 17, he said, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. And then in John 14, 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's a particularly important verse because you sit down and go, how could Luke write that gospel? Well, there just so happened to be a Holy Spirit who would bring to remembrance every single thing that Jesus told him. That's how Luke could write that gospel. That's how Matthew could write that gospel. 
in those sets of verses, those are four different sets of verses, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit does nine things. And I'm just excerpting this from the verses that we just read. The first thing he said is he's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's going to convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And those of you that know the Holy Spirit, you know that when the Holy Spirit is inside of you and there's sin residing there, he is very good at pointing that out. Well, you have this really bad attitude towards this person. The last 50 things you've said about this person have all been negative. The Holy Spirit will convict the world and us of sin. He convicts us of sin. He lets us see that sin is not okay. He lets us see that sin is evil. He makes us to hate sin rather than to play with sin. We shared this last time. The world, the world dives into sin. Christians mostly discuss sin and play with it. A few Christians hate sin. Jesus hated sin. The world dives in. We tend to play with it. Jesus hated it. The Holy Spirit will help us to hate sin. He will convict us and help us to hate sin. He will show us what is the right way. He will show us what is God's judgment. He will guide us into all truth. What a tremendous thing. How many people have you felt that are completely lost in what they're doing because they feel like if I don't control the reins and tell the horses where to go, nothing can turn out right. The older you get, the more you realize you control less than you ever thought you did. You think you control, you don't control. You just don't control. I, I, I joke a little bit sometimes about people. Uh, we have a, when I go home from work, I go down Shalliford Road and I have to take a left on Briarcliff. Their car's lined up half a mile. But in the right lane that turns right, you can just zip right up, and people are all the time zipping right up right before the light and then cut quickly into the left lane. And God's dealt with me multiple times on that because I'll even find myself getting up next to the car in front of me so this guy can't do that quick cut because I hate that when people just cheat and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting for 12, 15 minutes to get up to the front and they just go to this. And the Lord got a hold of me, and he gets a hold of me on multiple things. He said, are you going to complain about them or pray for them? And I said, well, actually, I'd prefer to complain about them. And he said, well, we're going to change that. Will you give the Lord your complaining? I hate to tell you how much complaining has been in my life. Helen can tell you. But I can, I, there's a lot of complaining throughout the years where I would say, how could this be done this way? This is causing a big problem for me, and other people should fix it. Almost never does anybody else fix it. That's life. Okay, the Lord is the only one who can fix every single thing. And he said to come unto him all ye that are labor and heavy laden, and he'll give you rest. And he will, but he is the only one. So the Lord is, he will guide, the Spirit will guide us into all truth. He will show us things that need to be changed. He will glorify Jesus is the third thing. The fourth thing is he will testify about Jesus. The fifth thing is he will take from Jesus and disclose it to you. So the Holy Spirit is totally centered on the revelation of the Christ in our life. He will show you Jesus. If you hear a spirit that's saying something else that doesn't glorify Jesus, it's not the Holy Spirit. And there are other spirits. There are other spirits running rampant, and they try to talk to us. They try to influence things, but the Bible says the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus, teach us about Jesus, take from Jesus, and give it to us. Now, that's great news. 
That's great news. It says, He will teach you all things, bring to your remembrance everything Jesus has said. How many of you have been in a situation and all of a sudden this scripture just kind of floats in from nowhere that's totally relevant to what you're thinking about? Happens to me all the time. The Lord will just bring a scripture and say this, where did that come from? It came from the Holy Spirit, getting it from Jesus, bringing it into my heart because I desperately needed it in that moment. And he would bring it in. And he teaches you and guides you into all truth. The Holy Spirit is a marvelous person. Just marvelous. It's true what Jesus said. It's better that Jesus leave and the Holy Spirit can come and live inside of us. It is actually much, much, much better that the Holy Spirit can be inside. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus living inside of us. And then he said, he will abide in you. He will abide in you. And it says last that you, we didn't read it in this verse, but the other thing that he does is you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you might say, well, I got power. I can do that. Not, I'm talking about God's power. God's got power in a different dimension. We're a bunch of big wheelers lining up saying we really know how to drive. And God comes across in these really big cars going, you're not even in the driver's seat. God's in a different dimension. His power is beyond us. You know, the scripture says he stoops to behold the universe. We cannot conceive. One thing that helps me in life is just to think about everlasting life because that blows my mind i cannot think of life unending i can't think that there's going to be and this might scare you as well there's going to be a jim perkle forever i can't get my mind around just that i'm going to be everlasting now i'm going to be in heaven but just the everlasting part of it not what's going on but it's just never going to end i can't it takes my mind to a tilt. I go, well, I can't get that. And God said, that's where I want your mind. Now your mind's moldable. You come over here until you can't handle it, and I'll pick you up, and we'll go from there. Because Jesus would say things that don't make sense to the natural mind. He would say, I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Not that I dispense truth and that I dispense life. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the resurrection. It says in 1 Corinthians 1.30 that he was made unto us the wisdom of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He was made unto us redemption. Jesus is. He does not dispense. He is redemption. It said he was made unto us sanctification. Jesus is our sanctification. It's not that he puts a process in going that'll sanctify us he is our sanctification and then finally he says he is our righteousness it's not that he dispenses righteousness he is our righteousness well when i say these phrases i only know these things a little bit but that's what jesus is and he wants to get us to the place where we recognize him that way but it's a total transformation beyond the way our mind normally thinks and only jesus can do it the Holy Spirit guides us into that truth. It's a tremendous, wonderful thing that he does. So the Holy Spirit is very important. He's not an add-on if you're Pentecostal. That's not the deal. He's very, very important. And then Jesus said the most beautiful verse, which is one I, I like to use multiple times, which is Luke eleven thirteen. 13. Jesus said, If you then, being evil, 
know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? That one single verse is so important. Jesus said, you being evil know how to give good gifts. Your heavenly Father will most definitely give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him. Well, you say, well, you can't be that simple. It can't be as simple as asking Jesus to give you the Holy Spirit. That's too simple. It's that simple. Now, you can't do it with your lips, with your heart being somewhere else. It's got to be a request that comes from your heart. God is not, me God is not mocked. And people that come and try to get something of God and make money on it, God knows that. You know the story in Acts, I can't remember the guy's name, but he came up and he said, Show me how you do that, because I want to have that ability. Simon, yeah. And Simon went back and he said, you pray that God forgives you, because you were trying to market this thing of God. And so he said, this, we can't do that with God. But a genuine heart, it isn't that you have to walk through all these steps. It's just like salvation. He says that the, your heavenly Father will most definitely give the Holy Spirit to them that asks. So, the big thing in our lives is to open up and ask the Lord and say, Lord, baptize me with your Holy Spirit. The rest is up to God. But it's got to be something genuine in our heart. Now, a lot of times when I come and talk to God about things that need to happen, he starts talking about things that he wants to happen in my life first. He may do that very thing. That's fine. But God said, all you've got to do is ask for the Holy Spirit. One of the main things that Satan does in this hour is to make the Holy Spirit look complicated. And go, oh man, if you don't read these three books on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, you can't even walk into that area. You can't even be involved if you're not up on how the Holy Spirit moved in the Old Testament. What was it that Elijah had that Elisha got a double dose of? How did that exactly work? And when all these things happen, if you don't understand all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, you can't begin going in this. That is wrong. The single requirement that God said is that you ask from your heart. That is the single requirement. The rest the Lord takes care of. This is true of all of life. It's coming unto the Lord. The Lord is taking care of the rest. Every once in a while, we think we know what we're doing. And we think we're taking care of it. But the Lord is taking care of it. Um, a few months ago, Helen was making a cake with my grandson, Luke. And this shows some of my ignorance. But say what? If Helen was telling me to say something or not. But Helen had a bowl of sugar there. And there, a mixer going around making the cake. And Luke had on his nice apron that said Luke on it. It was a very nice picture. I have a picture of it in case any of you are dying to see it. And so Luke was taking this little scoop, and he would go into the sugar, and then he would put it over here in the mixer, and it was going around and everything. And I watched this for a couple of minutes. But sometimes when Luke would go in there, he'd get a big scoop of sugar. And then sometimes he'd just get a little bit. Sometimes it would dribble back in the bowl before he gets it out. And I was watching Helen. Helen wasn't paying hardly attention at all how much he was getting. And I said, honey, you don't know what he's put into that cake. He takes little scoops and big scoops, and you're not paying attention. You're not even counting how much he puts in. And she looked at me very nicely but very gently down and said, honey, when he finishes, I'm going to pick up the whole bowl of sugar and put it in. Because I didn't know there was that much sugar in a cake. Okay, but there is. Helen had it totally covered. But I got all antsy because she wasn't tracking the number of scoops and how all this goes. That's us with the Lord. 
The Lord has us all the way from underneath. And we keep going, yeah, but how is this going to work? How is this going to work? How is this going to work? He says, I'm going to take it all and take care of all of it at once. I've never left you. I'm going to take care of it all. And I got put in my place by Helen because I didn't know anything about how much sugar went into a cake. The Lord doesn't put us in our place. He just takes care of those things. He knows how to do it. It's one thing we're going to do in heaven is really be upset with ourselves how many times we directed God on how things should be done. I doubt we'll get upset with ourselves at all. We're going to be so excited. But if we were honest, we'll go, oh my gosh, he had it the whole time. So in Acts, when he's talking about it, when he's talking about this in Acts, there are four examples of the Holy Spirit that are worth getting because lots of people run around with these doctrines that the enemy puts out trying to confuse people. It's got to be done this way. Um, I believe Erskine was sharing with me one time. He was in a meeting and, and uh, some people were praying to receive the Holy Spirit. And he said there was one lady that was on the right ear and they were whispering into his ear going, lay hold, lay hold, just lay hold. All you have to do is lay hold. And he said, well, that was okay, except there was another lady on his left ear saying, let go, let go. All you have to do is let go. <laughs> so he had lay hold come through here and let go come in the other side. And it just tore him up inside. We do these things with the Lord. What if we were to say to somebody, to accept the Lord in your heart, you have to lay hold. No, you have to let go. We'd get them all confused. We'd go up to somebody, you didn't have anything to do with that. Just genuinely in your heart, invite him in, he'll come. It's the same truth about the Holy Spirit. There's not a process or a procedure or a gizmo or anything about it. It's just the simple asking of your heart. Well, was this important to believers in the New Testament? Yes, it was important. We know the story of Pentecost. In Acts 1.15, it says about 120 people were gathered together in the upper room. And I want to emphasize that because some people think it was just the 12 disciples. But it wasn't. It was 120 people gathered together. In Acts 2, 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They were all filled, which means all 120, which means God didn't go through and say, Okay, you walked with Jesus for a year and a quarter, so you get to be filled. You've only been here for a few weeks, so you don't get to be filled yet. Nope, it says all 120 were filled. He said, Terry, there God came, and he gave it to everybody. It's not based on any sort of merit system or experience system. That is not in the Bible. It is in the basic equipping of the saint, starting out, making sure that you invite the Holy Spirit into your life. In Acts 2.33, Peter, speaking of Jesus, said, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, meaning Jesus, has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus poured forth the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter says. Jesus poured forth the Holy Spirit, and that's what you see here, not a bunch of drunk people. And it says then, when in Acts 4, 8, when it's talking about Peter it's a particularly important description that the Bible puts on Peter because it says in Acts 4, 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, and started out on his sermon. But it was Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not said about Peter up until that point in the Bible. A second example is in Samaria. 
And so Samaria received the word of God, and it came to Jerusalem, and they decided they were going to send Peter and John down to see them. And so in Acts 8, 14 through 17, it says, Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So we had people in Samaria who had believed in Jesus. They were saved. Jesus was their Savior. We had people that had been water baptized, and they had been water baptized into the name of Jesus. And when Peter and John came, what they found was these people had been water baptized, they believe in Jesus, and now they need to receive the Holy Spirit. And they laid hands on them. So if somebody says, well, this isn't the way that it works. You see, um, there isn't something that goes beyond being saved and being water baptized. Being saved and water baptized is it. Now you're a Christian. There's no more visitation of God. Everything just flows from that. That's not what this scripture says. This scripture said people were saved. They were water baptized. And they had not been filled with the Spirit of God. And Peter and John saw to it promptly that they laid hands on them and they were filled with the Spirit of God. It was important in the early church. The other one that we know is that Paul, after Paul was on the road to Damascus, Paul on the road to Damascus had seen Jesus. He had heard the voice of Jesus. He had turned his life around and given it to Jesus. But what did Ananias say when he came to him? In Acts 9, 17, Ananias departed and entered the house. And after laying hands on Paul, he said to him, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may, two things, regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's somebody who had heard Jesus' voice. And God said, there needs to be ministry to you that you be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not something that's incidental. It's something that's important. And Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. In another situation in the New Testament, um, there was a, a really lots of working in Peter's heart about the house of Cornelius. And, of course, Cornelius was a Roman centurion, and the Jews didn't mix with those people. And he had received a request to come and be with him, and we kind of all know that story. I'm not going to focus on all the story. But this is what God did, and I want to point this out, because if you try to put God in a box and say, here's the procedure, God will promptly do it another way to let you know God is not restricted by men's procedures. Uh, I want to say that again. God is not restricted by men's procedures. He doesn't go that way. One of the things Helen and I have been watching a little bit on YouTube is testimony of Muslims that are receiving dreams with direct things from the Lord. And you go, well, we haven't got a, we haven't got a missionary in that area. I, I, let me tell you what God did. He just overcame missionaries and went in there and showed them in dreams. Now, in the Muslim faith, dreams are a big deal. They put stock in dreams. It's a big deal. So God's coming in the dreams and starting. I, I, I don't want to highlight too many people, but there was a really good guy that, that ministered that shared his testimony who was a devout Muslim. And he came up till he was about 21, and he was so distraught because the deeper he got into the Muslim faith, the more empty it was. 
And you could just see the Spirit of God working on the guy. And he would, he would really, he would do everything you're supposed to do. He'd beat his head. He would beat his back with chains. He had done all the things to earn points. But the more he got in, of course, every other religion in the world, you have to earn the favor of God by things that you do. You have to merit that God would even look at you. Jesus is the only one who came down and got underneath us and lifted up. There's not anything remotely like that in any other religion. But in this one, what, what happened with this guy was great because he had no connection with anything, and, he, uh, and, and his testimony is really, really good. And so he, he got on the Internet, and he looked up the word gospel, and he was in Iran, and he looked up the word gospel. Well, the, the government had blocked gospel. And so anything, you got this error message saying this site is not permitted. But he was a clever guy, and he knew some stuff about Internet stuff, and so he got on as a proxy and got around the blocking. And he was able to find this thing where somebody had the four Gospels. And so he got the four Gospels and got them downloaded, and it was unbelievable what was there. Let me back up for a second. This is after he became a Christian. Before he became a Christian, he was watching on these dishes, the satellite dishes. And in Iran, it's illegal to have a satellite dish but there's 70 million of them. It's illegal to have it, but everybody's got it. And so he said he would flip through these channels, and in the normal thing, he said, we have eight channels that's kind of propaganda, teaching you only the Quran and all this. Those are the state channels. But these channels are up there on all these satellites, and he had come across this person that would say, Jesus loves you and cares about you and will come into your life and rescue you and make you a different person and he will do it for you if you will ask him into your heart. And he listened to that and go, boy, these are really, this is of Satan, this is bad, da-da-da-da-da. And he came back later and listened to it again, and the Lord had touched his heart. And he just stopped and said, look, I am so desperate, I am suicidal, I am at the very bottom of everything. Jesus, I don't even know if you exist, but if you do exist, then I am asking you to come into my heart and be my Savior. And the Lord did it in a mighty way. He began to uncontrollably cry. Heat started up from his hands, came through his whole body. He said it was like 200 pounds was lifted from his shoulder. He said things began to bubble up inside. He opened his mouth, began to speak in tongues. Never heard of speaking in tongues. And he said there was a fire on his body. All he could do was to go out and preach. He went to his mother who was sick with this really bad long-term disease, stretched out his hand, had never heard any of this, and said, in the name of Jesus, I bind this disease, you are set free. And she was healed, she became a Christian, he has some number of sisters that became a Christian, he's still working on two of his three brothers, but one of his brothers, is, it's tremendous, and he didn't know anything, he had never seen a Bible, he had never heard any of this. But God just stepped down. And then when he finally got the Bible, that way I was telling you, he would read through this. He said, I got the Bible. I read from 8 in the morning to well in the evening, just cried the whole time reading the gospel because he had never seen it. You see, God is not restricted. He can do it any way he wants to. He has chosen to minister through us. I'm amazed that he has, but he has chosen to use the imperfect to share the perfect. And he has chosen to do that. And he can overcome the imperfect with the perfect. So we're, we'd say, well, I'm not ready yet. I'm, I want to let you know that on your deathbed, Satan's going to tell you you're not ready yet. That is the voice of Satan. You're not ready yet. God can't use you yet. You need to be more mature. No, God can use you from the very start. 
wherever you are. So when, he, when Peter came to Cornelius' house, he got up to speak and was preaching a sermon. And God had the audacity not to let Peter finish his sermon. And the scripture says in Acts 10, 44 through 48, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and they stayed on there for a few days. So somebody say, well, you can kind of get to the Holy Spirit, but first you have to have an authentic salvation experience, then you've got to have an immersion baptism, and then after you get some teaching on it, you can ask for the Holy Ghost. That's not what God did. God let Peter talk. Nobody had anything where they invited Jesus in their life. Nobody touched a drop of water, and God just took his Holy Spirit and baptized them, and they began speaking in tongues. You can't tell God there's an order to that, and there is no way to look at the Scripture and say that this isn't for every single Christian at the beginning, not three years into maturity as a Christian. Absolutely amazing. And then finally, Paul and 12 Christians in Ephesus. This is good, too, because Paul went down to Ephesus, and it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth in Acts 19, 1-7, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, and this is interesting, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John, excuse me, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. In all, there were about 12 men. So here were men that had believed in Jesus. They had been baptized in the baptism of John. They came unto Paul, and Paul said, let's get you water baptized. He lays hands on them. That He didn't say, okay, be water baptized. Let's go for a while on my return trip. After you've walked as a Christian for a while, I'm going to teach you a little bit about the Holy Spirit. He didn't say that. It wasn't something that has to go through the intellect before it comes into you. It was, it's, it's part of God. God is never going to squeeze through our intellect. He is bigger than our intellect. That God lives inside of each one of us is beyond our comprehension and will always be beyond our comprehension. And we want him to be beyond our comprehension because our comprehension is so small. So here are four examples of the Holy Spirit coming to believers in Acts, and every single time it happened early, and there was no prerequisite. It was just that you had become a Christian. Now you say, well, my goodness, we should have been emphasizing this for hundreds of years. Well, yes, we should. We should have. Leaving the Holy Spirit out is not a good idea. Jesus said, it's more advantageous that I leave so that you can receive him, and, your, and the Father will gladly give him to you if you ask, and Jesus pours him out onto believers. There, there's a huge bit of good news there. And in other verses in the Bible, we, receive, we read, like in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says of Christians, 
Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? The Holy Spirit is in us. Now, we have a little trouble with this because body, soul, and spirit isn't something that naturally we jump onto. If I was to take Bob Norman and put him over against that wall and say, okay, we're going to dissect Bob Norman, and the first thing we're going to do is take away his body. Well, that would just take away... Your body is everything you can touch. Your soul or your mind and your emotions is different than your body. There's a mind and emotions. In the Greek, the word for body is soma, S-O-M-A, and the, the word for mind and emotions is C-K, P-S-Y-C-H-E, like in psychology. But the word for spirit is pneuma, P-N-E-U-M-A. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, And may your, body, your spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's actually, it's a tremendous verse. One of the things that's so good about that verse is it talks about the work of the Lord. And so when he says in verse 23, he says, And may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through. May your spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless till the coming of our Lord Jesus. And in verse 24, Faithful is he who is calling you, and he will also do it. So first thing he says is you need to be sanctified in spirit, soul, and body. The next thing he says is faithful is God who called you, and God will sanctify you in spirit, soul, and body. Faithful is he who called, and he will sanctify you. I'm praying that you be sanctified, and my God will sanctify you. Well, that's the spirit. That's how we know we're made of spirit, soul, and body. In Zechariah 12, 1, it says, For God puts the spirit of man in him. It says that we are made in the image of God and that God is spirit. So the part of us that's in the image of God is the spirit that's within us, not our nose and our fingers. It's the spirit that's within us. So we understand the spirit a little bit. Not a lot, just a little bit. We pretend we understand it a lot. We don't understand it a lot. Jesus said the man guided by the Spirit, you don't even know where he's coming from or where he's going to. And that's the person guided by the Spirit. That's not the Spirit. That's a whole other level is the Spirit. We can't even tell people who are guided by the Spirit where they're coming from or where they're going to. The Spirit is not something we can just wrap around and control. And we don't want to wrap around and control it. I always love about the Azusa Street Revival, no person led the meetings. The Holy Spirit led the meetings. And people would get up and talk as the Spirit guided them. There was not a leader. And there was a tremendous amount of things that happened because the Holy Spirit was in charge. So he says the Holy Spirit is within you. In Ephesians 1.13 it says that we were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And in 2 Timothy 1.14 it says... Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So the Holy Spirit was in every single believer that's mentioned in Acts. They talk about them receiving the Holy Spirit. After that, the Scripture talks about the Holy Spirit who lives within us. The normal, regular Christian life is to have the Holy Spirit in a believer. You cannot walk away from the Scripture without seeing that in every single thing that happens. And somebody says, well, I can't do that because uh, if I receive the Holy Spirit, that means I'm a Pentecostal. The word Pentecostal is not in the Bible. Holy Roller is not in the Bible. None of that's in the Bible. You know, we've got to be careful because when David danced before the Lord, 
His wife didn't like it because it didn't meet the way she wanted her husband to be presented. And that was Michael, his wife, and Michael ended up having no children because she objected to her husband worshiping the Lord by dancing before him. You can't sit down and tell God what's going to be an acceptable thing that springs from the heart. God looks at the heart. He judges the heart. That is what the scripture says, that man judges from the outside, but God judges the heart. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God is looking at the heart. And from the heart, all sorts of wonderful things come forth. But we bring in cultural things, historical things. What will so-and-so think of me? We have to take all those things and put them to the side and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm yours. What you want, this is what it means for him to be Lord and King. What you want, that is what I desire. Even if it's not been true in my life before, what you want, that is I desire. And God's plan, and he certainly was emphatic with this in the New Covenant, is he wanted to come and live inside of us so that we were merged together to know him. And he said, once that comes, no person will have to say to another person, know God, for all will know me. He said in John 17, 3, to know the Father and the Son is eternal life. So God meant to dwell within us, merge with us in a way we only partially understand, and the filling of the Holy Spirit is absolutely critical to that because it's God dwelling inside of us. Now, we're going to have a, a time where we minister and share with one another just like we normally do. But I want to encourage you that if you want to get water baptized, we can certainly baptize you here. We can take you to a swimming pool. We can make arrangements for that. That's not a problem. I have a swimming pool. I can definitely guarantee it. I would prefer it before November. Okay, but um, we can definitely do that. But if you're not sure that you have received the Holy Spirit, I just want to remind you of the verse in Luke eleven thirteen that if we know how to give good gifts being evil to our children, let me just go back and say it the right way. If we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? If you have not asked, I just encourage you to examine your heart. We'll pray for you right now. You won't walk out of this room without receiving the Holy Spirit. What will happen when the Holy Spirit comes on you? That's not up to me. That's up to the Holy Spirit. Okay, but without a doubt, we will pray with you, lay hands on you, and you can receive the Holy Spirit this morning. It's not a trick. It's not a gimmick. It's not in anything. It's God. It's God to dwell within us. So I encourage you. Now, if you come forward, if we're praying for you, one of the first things we're going to ask is, do you know Jesus as your Lord and King? Do you need to repent of sin? This isn't something where you skip repentance and jump into glorious manifestations of God. No, there's a repenting, coming unto Jesus, giving your life to Jesus. And that's the first thing to do. And you may need to do that. You may come up and say, I've got something in my life. I need to repent of this. And once I get best at it, I definitely want to receive the Holy Spirit. I want to receive God inside of me and walk where he wants me to walk. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we ask that you send down the rain of your Holy Spirit. In this hour, in this moment, Lord, let your Spirit work within our hearts in ways he's never worked before. Help, Lord, people who are considering 
inviting you into their lives all across this nation. Let us be, Father, instruments of yours that we can share Jesus in such a way that his spirit flows out from us over them that they can experience you as only, Lord, your Holy Spirit can do. I ask now, Father, that as we enter this time, you let us minister to one another, to your glory, Father, that you receive the praise and the honor. In Jesus' precious name, amen.